And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm really pleased that today can be uh, yet another opportunity to sit across from my faculty colleague, Dr. John, Dr. Art Sear, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, Director of the Clausen Center, uh, author of After the Cold War, and uh, a columnist whose works appear in newspapers across the country and uh, around the world as well. And uh, he joins us, as I said, once a month to uh, offer his perspective on various issues, both domestic and, and abroad. And uh, Professor Sear, it's great to have you back on the morning show. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning the Aspire Center, an extremely important initiative of our our good college in yeah. terms of practical employment opportunities for graduates and, and bridging the uh, student years with the uh, years after graduation, years of employment. Right. And you've had a good start to the school year for yourself and your department uh, for the Clausen Center? I have, yeah. Well, we're glad you fit in uh, the morning show into uh, into what I know is an especially busy schedule as the school year uh, heats up. There's an awful lot for us to uh, talk about, and actually probably one of the most important headlines that is worth our discussing is a Supreme Court ruling, not from our own United States Supreme Court, but from the 11 justices who comprise the British Supreme Court and a unanimous decision which uh, they just announced, which uh, runs counter to Prime Minister uh, uh, Boris Johnson and yet another uh, in a series of of setbacks for uh, Prime Minister Johnson, uh, all swirling around, of course, this uh, vexing issue of Brexit. Uh, If you would, uh, maybe we could begin by just having you, in a sense, describe uh, this decision from uh, the Supreme Court of Britain, what what prompted them to be confronting this particular question, and then we can talk about uh, the consequences that are likely ahead uh, for Britain and specifically uh, for Brexit and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Yeah, well, it, it is important. Brexit, as our listeners will know, is a shorthand term for Britain leaving the European Union. The... Um, the previous conservative government of David Cameron lost, just barely lost, it's important to keep in mind, something like 52 to 48, a uh, public referendum in 2016. And uh, that began, that kicked in the very large uh, engine of withdrawal from the European Union, and the British have been struggling to negotiate that, uh, negotiate that ever since. Um, Cameron resigned in the wake of his defeat and in that surprising outcome, Theresa May, his successor, called a snap election, which uh, her prognosticators and experts and she and the polls indicated the conservatives would win. They lost, and uh, they uh, that that put the conservatives in a much straightened situation where they could only survive with the uh, support of an extremely conservative and basically anti-European. Um, uh, party in uh, Northern Ireland, and the melodrama has continued to unfold from there. Uh, Boris Johnson was elected by a small number of conservative party leaders, and uh, there have been abdication. There have been uh, he, the party's been abandoned by various members of parliament, parliament, including some long-term members, thanks to his pretty extreme and rigid interpretation of the Brexit departure. 
and other party members who refuse to uh, abide by the whip, that is, party discipline in Parliament. Something like 20 of them were ousted from the party. So the whole thing has been uh, a bit confusing. But the following on, um, the same kind of decision by the Supreme Court of Scotland a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Supreme Court of Britain of the United Kingdom has unanimously determined that the prime minister, in effect, broke the law by proroguing parliament or adjourning parliament arbitrarily. And that puts him in a very, very sticky situation. I hope that's clear. We should talk about, I mean, that last matter, that's really what prompted the Supreme Court to be, of course, taking up this, this question, the matter of Boris Johnson suspending parliament, which, uh, I mean, it, you know, it's interesting when when we first read the headlines of that over here that that seemed pretty uh, that seemed pretty ominous. It seemed quite quite a dramatic gesture, perhaps unprecedented. And of course, it's not unprecedented at all. Uh, Parliament has been suspended before, uh, but you know, maybe not under these circumstances. Okay. What is your understanding of of what the point was of of Boris Johnson suspending Parliament? Was he just trying to, in a sense, shut them up over the matter of Brexit? Yeah, and keep them from complicating his already uh, vexed political existence even further. Parliament is adjourned or prorogued, but customarily and almost always um, just before a general election. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a different circumstance, a different situation. Now, Britain is scheduled to leave the European Union on October 31st. The um, uh, Parliament has voted uh, quite substantially, meaning the House of Commons, that uh, involving various opposition parties and people who've left the Conservatives, that uh, without a deal, without a specific agreement, um, Britain cannot leave the the EU. Uh, The good news is this is all very much a a family um, conflict, a family feud, a family war, if you will, within Britain. The European Union Supreme Court last December, in effect, their Supreme Court determined that it's entirely up to the British. They don't have to leave. This is their initiative. And we, Europe, are not under any stipulation to force them out or to enforce any particular deadline. Under Theresa May's brief hapless government, the deadline was regularly extended. Interesting. It is interesting. I, uh, beyond what Boris Johnson might attempt to do and what Parliament might do in response, uh, I've also been thinking a little bit about the matter of Brexit itself. I ran into uh, one of our colleagues at Carthage who has spent a great deal of time at, in Britain and actually recently was in sabbatical and spending some time there. And uh, he was reminding me that... You're referring to John? Yes. Yeah, yeah John, John Lee is. Right. And, John uh, Lee is there. And he was uh, remarking that that really the British public remains very sharply divided on this issue and Sometimes uh, in kind of the tumult around Boris Johnson and before him, Theresa May, sometimes there's this sense that that almost nobody in Britain wants Brexit, wants to leave the European Union. And that's just not true. There are plenty of, of Brits who who uh, are unhappy 
with uh, being part of the European Union for for various reasons, and and sometimes those reasons can kind of take on an ugly, ugly tint if those if if that discontent is is seems to be rooted in you know certain kinds of bigotry, for instance, or self protection or whatever. But but the but regardless of what's behind that. Uh, he was saying that that there's kind of a, a long history there. That even when Britain first joined the European Union, that was not a particularly easy choice that the nation made, and there were plenty of people with serious reservations about it. I appreciated being reminded of that. That this remains a divisive issue, uh, even if, for instance, Boris Johnson and his party should be toppled from party that from from power. That does not solve the issue of Brexit in and of itself. And this is going to remain probably a, a pretty painful and difficult decision for the Brits to, to wrestle with. Does that sound right? Yes, that does sound right. The um, uh, Johnson expert on fishing and related trade and commerce issues, and that's really the nitty-gritty of uh, what's involved in being in the European Union. The original six members... Um, Germany, meaning then the Federal Republic of Germany or West Germany, Italy, France, and the Low Countries, Benelux, Bel- Bel- Benelux Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, uh, through the Treaty of Rome in the 1950s, set up the European Economic Community, building on collaboration that allied leaders, uh, including Roosevelt and Truman and Churchill, had decided to encourage uh, early on in World War II. The, there's a European emigre who found refuge in Washington, Jean Monnet, who was a principal instigator of this initiative. The uh, British could have joined the original six, and they decided not to. They set up a competitive organization, which still exists, EFTA, the European Free Trade Organization, hmm. which is a kind of odd amalgam of countries that um, circle the continent and do not have the same kind of intense and growing trade and finance relations that have characterized the continent since after World War II. Hmm. The uh, British changed their minds under Harold Macmillan, ironically, uh, conservative prime minister, a very great leader in my view, who was prime minister from 57, I think, to 53, 56 or 57 to 53, 63, 56 or 57 to 63. He took the initiative to join the European Union, and they were turned down by General de Gaulle of France, who in early 1963 vetoed their entry. They tried again under the uh, successor labor government of Harold Wilson. They were vetoed again by de Gaulle. (laughs) Finally, Edward Heath, who deserves a lot more credit than he gets and was prime minister from 70 to 74, he did the yeoman effort of negotiating the uh, original effort to enter in the early 60s and through the 60s, they finally got in under him. It reflects the reality that trade and investment, but especially trade with the British Empire, what's left of it, and Commonwealth, which was and is substantial. These countries around the globe that were the British Empire in the past, that has dwindled, and more and more the British are concentrated economically in the continent. And... uh, their economy has tipped just barely into recession in contrast to others and in great contrast to ours at the moment. And a big factor in that is uncertainty about mm-hmm. trade, commerce, not just immigration, but day-to-day business relationships if, in fact, the British leave mm-hmm. Europe. So it's been a rocky marriage right from the start and, and a marriage that very nearly didn't happen in the first place then. 
Quite right. Wow. As you indicated, uh, the British have always been ambiguous about Europe, dating back for hundreds of years, and that's reflected in the current VEX debate. Two factors to keep in mind. Uh, they are very, very committed to military security in Europe. From the beginning, they've been a loyal NATO ally, a very important one. They have one of the largest navies in NATO in terms of total number of ships. They don't have the big capital ships, the carriers that we do and others, but they have a very substantial navy and an extremely effective army, I can assure you. Mm. They were uh, uh, characteristically skillful diplomats and brokered North America, Canada, as well as the U.S. involvement in NATO. The other factor is uh, the purpose of the European Union from the beginning was not primarily economic and business. It was to prevent a third war in Europe, to keep the Germans in check and uh, provide such a closely integrated Germany in terms of economic interests that along with democracy, it would be less likely that uh, another horrible war would unfold. And that's worked like a charm. That's worked perfectly. Mm. And when you're feeling uh, frustrated and alarmed and concerned about media discussion of Brexit, it's important to keep that in mind. We've been spared since 1945, and that's a long time. Mm. For those of you just joining us, my guest on the morning show today is Dr. Art Seer, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy at and World Business at Carthage College, director of the Claussen Center there. And uh, once a month, uh, Dr. Sear uh, joins us uh, on the morning show to uh, offer his thoughts and perspective on uh, various issues and concerns both here and around the world. Uh, President Trump uh, is about to speak at the United Nations, and uh, he is expected <coughs> to speak uh, primarily about uh, kind of rising concerns around the nation of Iran uh, in the Middle East, and uh, the possibility which uh, of that Iran was perhaps the the uh, behind the recent attacks on oil fields in Saudi Arabia, and apparently uh, France and Britain and Germany have joined the United States in sort of expressing their belief that uh, that Iran m may indeed have been responsible. Uh, tensions are high right now, of course, between the United States uh, and Iran. Um, any sense of what we might hear from President Trump today? I know you didn't write his speech for him, but uh, uh, where, where do you th see things going between our, our two countries? Well, the president doesn't always stick to his speeches either, as we all know, and I, uh, he tends to be unpredictable, and I certainly wouldn't presume to speak for the president. I hope he delivers a good speech worthy of um, the office he currently occupies. I hope it's not a hostile speech, and I hope it's not a chest-thumping, incendiary speech. In a more, seri in a more um, positive vein, it does, more, speaking more positively, it does underscore the central importance of the UN and how that very important world body, which again dates from the Second World War and in genesis from the League of Nations after the First World War, it really shows just how established this institution has become. And it's easy to uh, be cynical and sarcastic about uh, Stripe Pence diplomats and cookie pushers, as sarcastic Americans in, in an earlier time like to say, some of our citizens. But in point of fact, serious work gets done by the UN, and um, talking, speaking publicly and privately is an extremely important part of that process. Mm. This is the annual meeting of the General Assembly, uh, 
in uh, in New York, which is sort of the opening of the UN, and w- traditionally world leaders come in very large numbers to New York. And again, that's important to keep in mind, whatever the uh, uh, statements by any leader might be. I uh, wanted to make at least brief mention of the uh, uh, all of the attention that has been drawn to the UN cl- climate summit that has sort of happened yeah. just ahead of the the General Assembly meeting, and in particular, a lot of attention has been generated by this uh, this this young girl st- still in her teens, uh, Greta Thunberg, who has spoken out so forcefully on the uh, issue of climate change. And this comes uh, in the wake of fairly sizable demonstrations uh, that have happened in a number of different countries around the world with primarily young people uh, gathering together and demonstrating and calling for world leaders to be more mindful of the issue of, of climate change. I've just found it a really striking phenomenon, even beyond the importance of the issue itself, is uh, this phenomenon of of young people in such numbers. And I mean, younger than college age, I mean, uh, I mean really young, young people uh, gathering and demonstrating and speaking out forcefully. It just this just seems like something I've never seen, at least in my lifetime. I suspect in your lifetime either. I just can't think of a parallel to it. Well, there were many, many demonstrations, uh, some of them quite violent by young people back in the 1960s. Well, sure, but I don't think many of them were 14 and 15 years old. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I think of those demonstrations as primarily college students, which is, I mean, young adults. Uh, and what we were seeing in these demonstrations around climate change were with, with youngsters. I mean, with 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 children younger than that. That's 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 the only distinction I'm making. Well, that's a very telling point. Um, why do you suppose that is? Well, it seems to me that these children are taking this issue of climate change uh, more seriously than than uh, than. You know, some of us were were prepared for, perhaps because uh, they have a longer future on this planet than you or I do, and uh, and are waking up to this uh, th- into this issue. And of course, there are those who who doubt the veracity of of it, but but certainly these these young people marching, leaving school, um, uh, are taking it very seriously and believe that current world leaders are not not taking it as seriously as they should. But I just, I just find it, I mean, I have no idea how ultimately effective they will be, but it's just been a very interesting uh, phenomenon to follow and observe. Do you, do you think contemporary social media, uh, contemporary telecommunications makes that possible? Well, certainly. And the it, fact, a much larger share of the world's population is no longer just in abject, barely surviving poverty, whether in China or Africa. Well, it certainly, uh, or elsewhere, social media certainly facilitates a connection between young people, and probably facilitates the formation of widespread demonstrations mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, it will be interesting to see w- what happens. The only parallel I could think of was uh, the way young people have taken on the uh, the the issue of of gun control. Uh, in the wake of the Parkland shootings, when uh, so many of those uh, young people from that high school proved to be very effective spokespeople on behalf of their perspective on this issue. And uh, I also don't think we had 
ever seen that before. So. Quite serious and quite moving. That that seems to me more more a U.S. phenomenon, understandably, since we have this terrible problem of, um, of firearm violence. That seems to me to be much more a U.S. phenomenon right. than a worldwide phenomenon. Um, it's It's only similar in suddenly seeing hearing from a voice that had not been heard from before. Mm-hmm. I mean, for all of the school shootings that have occurred before Parkland, I don't ever remember hearing from the young people directly affected in the way that we have heard from them now since Parkland. Uh, so just hearing a new voice, a dramatically younger voice, in kind of a collective discussion. And, and now that appears to be perhaps beginning to occur around this issue of climate change as well. And it's just interesting to think how that might possibly help shape this, this debate and, uh, and discussions about how to confront climate change. So, Well, that's a good point, Greg. It's good to have your thoughts. Thank you. Let's move on to uh, something you wrote about in one of your more recent, recent columns, which was uh, the tension between Japan and South Korea. Uh, that apparently things have become very icy between these two nations. And, and your column actually makes reference to what has been, uh, what you describe as a bitter, difficult history between uh, South Korea and, and Japan. Uh, let, let's begin there first. Give us kind of a, a little longer-term perspective on exactly why uh, relations between those two countries have been so very, very difficult. Uh, during and since World War II, and um, and then talk about kind of these current tensions that have escalated. Well, actually, they were difficult through the 20th century. Um, Japan industrialized. We're, we're all used to the contemporary Asia, vast and rapid economic growth, um, a part of the world that is increasingly the center of uh, growing trade and investment. Since 1985, our total exports and imports as, as measured, and, and that data is useful to a degree um, between, coll- collectively between us and Asia, has been greater than with Europe and the Atlantic area, and that trend has grown. Um, that context is really important. Asia was uniformly pre-industrial with the exception of Japan into the 20th century. And uh, as Japan began, a f- like Germany, a phenomenal, extraordinarily rapid industrial revolution in the 1850s, uh, they also began to assert themselves militarily. And uh, they, in, in rather brutal fashion, uh, conquered the peasant uh, country of Korea, then unified, of course, um, it, it was a rough, to put it politely, takeover, and they occupied Korea until 1945. Um, it, in contrast to Taiwan, for instance, it was not a particularly benign occupation, and uh, Korean people were exploited, men as laborers, women as prostitutes, uh, pretty ruthlessly, mm-hmm. it's fair to say. In 1965, the government of Japan paid about $500 million in compensation to um, the people of South Korea, then divided along the 38th parallel, of course, and that was supposed to close the books. That was, in terms of the two governments, that was supposed to take care of things. Hmm. 
rather recently, the Supreme, speaking of Supreme Courts, where we started in Britain, <laughs> the Supreme Court of South Korea, uh, Korea uh, decided that uh, the governments may have settled um, and balanced the books, so to speak, um, in financial and therefore moral terms. It was supposed to put the past behind them, that individuals could um, sue companies, Japanese firms, for damages suffered during that uh, very unfortunate period. And lawsuits have developed, and things have degenerated from there. Uh, sort of tit for tat, Japan has engaged in some uh, um, policies to try to limit the um, uh, and restrict the trade between the two countries. They've had most favored nation status, and that's come to an end as a result. I think leaders on both sides are trying to avoid this getting completely out of hand at the same time that politicians on both sides have been sounding off publicly in mm. order to try to benefit themselves while exacerbating the situation. President Moon in South Korea <clears throat> has gone out of his way to be kind of Lincoln-esque, and he's tried to be mm. above the battle, and he's, he is the president. He has considerable authority. <clears throat> but not complete authority in that democracy. And he's urged uh, people in Korea as well as in Japan to exercise restraint. Hmm. I, think it, I think it's unfortunate, but there it is. Right. This seems like the kind of conflict that could be painful on a couple of different levels, that, uh, first of all, it is a conflict that could very directly hurt both Japan and South Korea economically. But I should think that we're also talking about at least the theoretical possibility that this could have larger ramifications in terms of maybe damaging the regional economy or, you know, I don't know. Even it could, uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, so uh, are you optimistic that, uh, that, uh, that, that these tensions can be eased? I mean, are the, the principal players who are in place, uh, do they seem like the kind of leaders who can uh, draw these two nations uh, to a, to a, more harmonious place? I don't know. Uh, my feeling is yes, but uh, you know, I'm a professor, which means I'm quite good at predicting the past, <laughs> and uh, my track record is not all that good throughout my life in terms of major events in the world. So my my opinion is that uh, it's not, it's not going to continue to deteriorate. Old-fashioned nationalism is no longer the factor that it was <clears throat> in the 20th century, thank God. And I think both sides have a, a strong interest in collaborating. Japan has no natural resources uh, outside of a very talented population. Much the same can be said of South Korea. <clears throat> there is min mineral wealth, but ironically it's concentrated in the, no in the north. Hmm. And into the 60s, the north actually... They were both rudimentary economies, but the North was stronger than the South. <coughs> South Korea, like Japan, has had a phenomenal economic revolution from a peasant society to a powerhouse economy, one of the top 12 economies in the world. Just since the early 60s, it was not only a peasant economy, but they were totally devastated by the Korean War, hmm. uh, both halves of Korea. They've overcome that, and uh, I, think pre I think President Moon, while he's unpopular at home right now, and uh, he is limited in terms of years in office, I, th I think keep an eye on him and see how he operates. He um, was imprisoned by the 
Park Chung-hee regime when he was a very young person. He, he was a human rights activist mm. and uh, was a human rights lawyer. He's also a special forces uh, officer in the Korean mili- military, served in the DMZ. He's quite a remarkable guy, and I admire him a lot. The column I um, referred to Kim Dae-jung, the historically great, uh, pivotal Democratic leader in some ways, the George Washington of South Korea. Hmm. And I think that spirit in our time will prevail. Hmm. Thanks for asking my opinion. <laughs> for those of you just joining us, uh, my guest today on The Morning Show is Dr. Art Sear, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College. And today is Professor Sears' monthly visit to The Morning Show, and we always appreciate hearing from him on a plethora of different uh, issues and uh, and concerns. Uh, he is a regular visitor, by the way, as well, to uh, our public radio neighbors to the north, WUWM. Uh, Professor Sear, you wrote uh, quite an interesting column uh, not long ago on uh, the exit of John Bolton as Donald Trump's uh, national security advisor. And one of the most interesting things in that column, I thought, was uh, when you called up what is sometimes the imagery used to describe, uh, I suppose, any government, and in particular the United States government, as a ship of state, and uh, and how that image can be helpful in terms of us understanding uh, how a government is meant to function. I mean, how it functions when it is functioning well, and and in a sense, what the exit of John Bolton and numerous. Uh, other uh, officials and players uh, in in the Trump administration, what that is in a sense sort of doing to the course of of our current ship of state. So first of all, I, I would love to have you kind of share with our listeners a little bit more about this image of the U.S. government as a ship of state. Well, on my blog, which Carthage College is nice enough to uh, uh, to continue to publish on the college's website, although it's obviously my personal opinion. I don't presume to speak for the college, and the college doesn't take uh, policy positions as an institution beyond education. The, uh, I found a very nice photo of the USS Constitution, uh-huh. which is in Boston Harbor. It's on um, its dock. It's an important educational center as well as tourist attraction. The great U.S. warship from the... Um, uh, revolutionary period in our country's history and distinguished in the War of 1812. Ship of State is a popular poetic image, including with Walt Whitman <coughs> and others. I believe Winston Churchill liked to refer to that in his uh, carefully orchestrated and vitally important effort, personal efforts as prime minister to cultivate American public opinion before we entered World War II. Anybody who's been on a ship, large or small, knows that you have to stay on course. And I found the imagery um, instructive as well as very attractive. You have to, and the current administration, it's tough to stay on course anytime in Washington. But the current administration, of course, has been particularly erratic. Right. There's been a, a lot of departures from a lot of key uh, positions and and uh, and of course, John Bolton's is just uh, his exit. That is, is just just the latest. Whether he offered his resignation or or was asked to resign, that's still uh, I think uh, 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 there are conflicting accounts of of that. Uh, tell us, 
tell us your impressions of of what has gone wrong between President Trump and and John Bolton. Well, I don't have any inside information. Sure. The president clearly, uh, you don't need inside information to know he is very changeable and temperamental, and he has replaced people very quickly. The National Security Advisor is a distinctive position that um, reflects the direct role of the president in foreign policy on a continuing and detailed basis, meeting the White House and the White House staff and the um, very substantial staff in the executive office, old executive office building. (coughs) It's been renamed the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, uh, reflecting um, with 2020 hindsight appreciation of just how significant that president was. He uh, had not one, but in effect two national security staffs. He had a sizable planning board and an operations coordinating board. Um, Gordon Gray, a Boston banker, and Robert Cutler, also from the Northeast, were kind of um, successive staff people who coordinated the whole thing. General Andrew Goodpaster, a very distinguished military officer, um, was also a central figure during the Eisenhower administration and much later. President Kennedy, who uh, there was much criticism, especially from academics, that Ike was too stodgy and (laughs) too addicted to staff preparation and too aloof. Um, JFK wanted a much more reflecting his personality and also political calculation and also the fact that this was an intensively media-driven and media-involved administration. Uh, he recruited McGeorge Bundy, very young dean at the faculty at Harvard University, who um, put in place a much smaller staff and a more flexible staff. And along with others in the administration, it became much more visible and much more public. We tend to react to the problems and, and lessons of the immediate past. <coughs> when Richard Nixon and his advisor, Henry Kissinger, came in in 1969, they wanted to, uh, given the problems that had uh, resulted from the Kennedy and then Johnson approach to national security. They wanted a more structured environment. They uh, uh, expanded the staff to about 50 people, which seems about right, somewhere between 50 and 100. And certainly my own bias is Nixon and Kissinger were extremely effective in foreign policy terms, including major strategic agreements and an effective staff system and a very disciplined president in policy terms. Uh, explain that. Hmm. <coughs> I, it, things tend to expand in Washington. I think the the largest NSC staff ever was during the Obama administration the, when, hmm. when there were over 400 people wow. on the staff, including many, many young wannabes and PhDs. Uh, at one point, the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, in reaction to this, issued a public order that... Uh, you don't don't talk to White House staff people unless the President of the United States directly orders you to do so because uh, generals and admirals especially were being driven crazy by these mostly young staffers, a lot of them with ac- academic backgrounds who were constantly on the phone, uh, not just requesting but demanding interview time, planning time, and this and that and the other thing. 
So it waxes and wanes. I think Brent Scowcroft, uh, perhaps the most useful thing I could say, Brent Scowcroft was national security advisor twice, uh, after Watergate and um, uh, Nixon's resignation, turbulent time in this country uh, in the wake of Vietnam. He uh, really helped stabilize things as national security advisor to Gerald Ford. And then he came back under George Herbert Walker Bush, mm -hmm. a compliment to his ability and, and that Bush's executive ability, in my view. Uh, and uh, what he's written and what he and uh, Bush wrote together, um, uh, A World Transformed, is a very good memoir, mm -hmm. if you're really serious about these things. I think it's very instructive about how the NSC should function. One of the I, thing ho I hope that's clear. It's a really, it's always been interesting to me. Oh, it's it, a fascinating history. It really is. And I had the honor of working at the, the privilege of working, an opportunity of working at the Ford Foundation when I was quite young, um, after graduate school. And uh, McGeorge Bundy was, in fact, the president of the organization at that time, along with David Bell, the number two, another dedicated public servant. And I, I felt I learned a lot at a young age about the right way to handle things professionally and about, about good management. Right. And it sounds like from what you say in, in, in your column that one of the central responsibilities of the National Security Advisor and one of the key elements in whether or not they are going to be effective and successful is whether or not they are able to, in a sense, nurture cooperation between civilian and military intelligence. Can you talk a little more about that role, the kind of cooperation that you are talking about and why it is so important? Well, I, yeah, thank you very much. I put in something about the history of intelligence. A strange sort of genius is what Eisenhower said, among many other insightful things about the vital importance but also vexing nature of intelligence work. And coordination between civilian and military agencies is extremely important hard to achieve. With, this, with CIA especially, it tends to be a different culture. Um, and there's a sort of natural conflict, there should be, between an effective military and an effective civilian operation. So I, I described, I don't want to talk even uh, longer than I should, but uh, the column, I, th I think, has some capsule history from the beginning of the uh, National Security Council staff and the National Security Council, which was only put in place after World War II, right. I think in 1947. Um, General William Westmoreland, the field commander during the Vietnam War, at one point, point um, he was not a good man to be in charge of that war in particular. A uh, very honest man in my view. Um, it was just a, a, a bad fit. And uh, he did at one point order his intelligence officers not to talk to CIA representatives who were very active in Vietnam, tended to be um, extremely effective and extremely accurate in predicting the troubled nature of the war and the quantitative measures that indicated we were winning, mm. that the U.S. and South Vietnamese were, those uh, were not the true picture. Uh, it really is a good example of the importance of um, uh, that kind of open collaboration and information right. sharing. That's a perfect example of that cooperation gone awry. <laughs> I mean, that kind of shows yeah. what happens when there's not that cooperation. Uh, get with the program was the mantra during um, mm. 
that period in Vietnam, and it, it became kind of ominous. You know, you're not getting with the program. What we it was a kind of cheerleading approach. Uh, the general's natural optimism and determination, an incredibly disciplined person, and his feeling that um, singing as a single chorus was extremely important to victory mm. meant that he surrounded himself with an awful lot of yes men and some yes women, and it was uh, it was disturbing even at the time. Right. One other, and line especially with hindsight, right, the, the way right. things turned out. Absolutely. One other line I want to highlight in that column, you you talk about that uh, John Bolton's exit, and uh, as President Trump thinks about who he will uh, appoint to replace him as our national security advisor, comes at a time today when uh, the challenges that we face uh, in this whole sector, you say, are especially complex and subtle. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just uh, elaborate on what is behind those words about uh, the complexity and the subtlety of the challenges that we face on the intelligence front right now. Well, fortunately, we're no longer confronted with old-fashioned nationalism. There have been wars, but there hasn't been a general war since 1945. The growth of non-state actors meaning terrorist organizations, um, zealous and violent religious fundamentalists, but also criminal organizations, Uh, the importance of electronic intelligence, but also the human human dimension. I think getting the right balance or any kind of good balance between those two is always difficult. But given the American um, uh, strong strong prejudice in favor of electronic surveillance. Uh, We like technology, we like machinery, we're very good at it. Uh, It's crucial to our success in the world overall, not just economically. Uh, We tend to downplay human intelligence since World War II, and that's one thing that I had in mind. I think our British friends, with whom we collaborate closely and and where the special relationship began in intelligence cooperation long before Pearl Harbor, the um, uh, that partnership, I think, will be even more important in the future, and I've written about that separately. But there are a lot of components at any time that have to go, go into intelligence, but we're not dealing with a straightforward military challenge in the same that way that we did in the 20th century. Hmm. You also write, I think, so effectively about how uh, <laughs> for someone to be effective within the sphere of intelligence work, one needs to be um, discreet, <laughs> And you say, you know, that's increasingly rarely found in, I think, what you call tweet-happy Washington. Uh, And also the fact that selflessness needs to be involved and that sometimes uh, the bureaucrats who are part of the intelligence community uh, sometimes speak out in ways that harm the country in in an effort to, in a sense, protect themselves and their own stock. Uh, I think that is, I, I thought you said that very well. Well, I'm, uh, you're certainly very kind, and I'm, I'm uh, very flattered. You're making reference to more than one column and more than one essay here. Uh, I, Eisenhower and Nixon had a complicated relationship, um, and I'll leave it at that. One of Nixon's most insightful comments, and he's, he's always worth reading and reading about, uh, he asked Eisenhower once what the president thought was the most important quality. And he said President Eisenhower was silent for a long time. 
so long, I thought maybe he'd forgotten the question, and there was not a chance of that in this case. But he finally said selflessness, hmm. um, selfless person, and that's more important than anything else. Nixon rightly emphasized that. Uh, Beatle Smith, Eisenhower's right hand, during World War II in Europe from early on and before, I believe, he was later ambas ambassador to the Soviet Union, head of the CIA. He was very resentful of Eisenhower, ultimately. He, his last years, he, was, he, he worked like a dog, which you had to. He was also out front. Uh, he's the one who took care of the complex surrender documents when the Third Reich surrendered unconditionally. And then General Yodel was ushered in to see Eisenhower, hmm. who simply stared at him. To me, that symbolized the relationship in many ways. Uh, Eisenhower worked extremely hard as well. I'm not suggesting in any way otherwise, but Beatle Smith really suffered as a deputy. He suffered because he was selfless. He hmm. was dedicated to the country. Uh, when the Cold War was uh, really new and very much in danger of being hot, he did very well in Moscow. He was um, head of the CIA early on and did very, very well at CIA. He personified the kind of selflessness that I think Eisenhower had in mind. He mm -hmm. would say privately off the record, not leaking at all, Ike really has to have a Pratt boy, which is the, the person who does the dirty work. Mm. And uh, that's often the case in organizations, as you and I know and our listeners know. Right. Yeah, I think it was in actually... Selflessness, public service. Excuse right. me. One of the things that impressed me most, among a number of other things, about Bundy and Bell is they were complementary personalities, but they both reflected a kind of dedicated attitude toward public service that unfortunately has faded. Right. And I think it was, this was actually in an essay on WUWM that you said that as we start considering um, who should lead our country or who should represent us in Congress or, or whatever, as we face those decisions, this is one aspect that we should think long and hard about is, is this person selfless in their devotion uh, to our country and to our country's best interests? Well, again, you're certainly very, very kind. I'm flattered and uh, I look forward to reading your memoirs. <laughs> you're <laughs> right. definitely selfless. Sir. Well, you'll be in there. So Dr. Art Seer Clausen, Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business, I appreciate the time that you've given us today on The Morning Show. It's Always terrific to talk with you and uh, look forward to, uh, uh, to your visit in October and, uh, and, uh, and thereafter. Thank you for being part of the morning show and for providing us with yet another illuminating conversation. Well, likewise, Greg. Thank you.